everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with Steve Clifford, the new coach of the Charlotte Hornets, again, back for a second run in Charlotte. Cliff, number one, thanks for jumping in. Do you still wake up some days, Cliff, and go, I'm back in Charlotte again? Well, for sure, I'll tell you, I'm still, the the level of excitement, uh, things happen so quickly, and I'm obviously grateful for the opportunity, excited about the possibilities of our group and, and where we're at with the roster and everything, so even at my age, I'm on a little bit of a high here. Going back to the same team, and there's been others who might do it years later with different regimes, it's more possible but it, it wasn't that long ago. In between, obviously, you were in Orlando and went to the playoffs twice there. In between, I think it speaks to something about when you do leave a place of not burning bridges, of keeping relationships, and that the opportunity came around again for you. Your relationship with Michael Jordan, the owner, Mitch Kupchak, who got hired and essentially let you go, but you had a relationship with Mitch from your days with the Lakers there's probably some lessons to be learned in how this could happen again, that, that you left things in place to kind of come around the bend again with the organization. Yeah, and, and I mean this when I say it is, you know, five years last time, it was time. Um, my last year there didn't go well. I think the first four years I look back, I was proud of. I think our teams continued to get better and better during the season. The last year you know, issues. I had the headache issues and missed a bunch of games, but we never played well. You know, that was a team that could have played a lot better. Um, and in terms of the relationship part, Michael and I have a good relationship. I think we view things like the work part, the accountability part in a similar vein. We stayed in touch, not a, a lot, but we stayed in touch in the time I was in Orlando. And then, I mean, Mitch, Mitch has talked about this publicly. Um, you know, Mitch got the job. He knew he had to let me go. Three, four days later, we went to dinner. We had a great talk. And so he and I have always had a good relationship. And and um, I just think, you know, we all say it about coaching, right? We all say, you know, you're hired to be fired. And it is part of it. And you do have to have perspective about that. There was a process where they hired Kenny Atkinson and then Kenny changed his mind, went back to Golden State. Was there... Any point there in the in the first wave of the process versus the second where I don't think you really were a part of it when they did the first wave. The second wave, when you heard the news that Kenny had left, did it pop into your mind that it could be a possibility or not until Charlotte sort of started talking about opening the door back to having a conversation? Yeah, I didn't really think that I could be a factor in the search until Mitch called and you know, when I got off the phone with him, I mean, it happened so quickly. I think that was a, I want to say a Sunday night, and I went there Wednesday. Then when I, you know, when the four of us sat down, Michael, Mitch, Buzz, and I, and I could tell by the things that they were talking about that, you know, they knew I could be a good fit there. So, but not, not until he called that I really think I'd have a chance. You had interviewed in Sacramento. Uh, you were with Brooklyn last year as a consultant, and you've been an assistant in this league with Jeff Van Gundy, with Stan Van Gundy, with uh, Mike D'Antoni in LA. But 
the last year as a consultant, which is sort of an in-between place, right? Where you are there, you're not on the bench, but you're in the film room with Steve Nash. You, you could be at practice. What was that like in that role? And trying to figure out where I could contribute, but where I didn't want to overstep because there was a staff in place. What, what was that like in that interim year you had here before coming back to Charlotte? Well, it's, it's an interesting challenge, and you hit it 100% on top of what you're talking about. I actually spent time, after Steve and Sean Marks and I had spoken about the possibility of me going there as a consultant, I have a friend who owns her own consulting business agency, and the first thing she said to me is, if you have the right plan going in, you can help a lot. And if you don't, and you just go into any corporation, like you're the expert on everything, you can be very much a negative. And that hit with me. Um, I just know this is, I look at the staffs I, w- I was on, and if somebody would have brought in a consultant, even if I had great respect for them, and say, watch me work out, Richard Lewis for 45 minutes and then try to tell me something about it, I'm not sure how receptive I would have been. You know, Brooklyn had experienced staff, guys I knew, guys I respected. Steve did a great job along with Sean of having guidelines of what I would do. And I loved it. Um, You know, I was around uh, great players. Um, uh, Back to spend another year with Steve. He and I have always had a good friendship um, since the Lakers. And uh, I like the whole, really, collaboration was a big part of, of what they do there with Sean at the forefront of that. So it was a good learning year. And the consulting thing, is, it's such a different challenge. But, it, you know, it was a lot of fun. When you left Orlando, and as we said, three years there, two years in the playoffs, and then the third year, organization went toward a rebuild, traded your veterans, got picks and you moved on after that third year, you had your pick of any, I can say this, I don't know, you will, but like anybody wanted to hire a top assistant in the league and you could have probably been the highest paid top assistant in the league, all those opportunities were out there, but you decided not to do that and sort of do the consulting. Where were you, the thought of not going back in full-time, the grind of being an assistant and the travel and all of that, versus how you did it in Brooklyn where you, you, you'd come in town, you'd spend some time, do projects, go home for a while. What, what was the thought when, when you were making that decision? I think just to, I guess like everybody else, is you know, you get to the age where what's the best thing for me? Um, where I knew I didn't want to be not involved in the NBA, but I, you know, used the word grind. I thought it would be healthy for me to take a year off and not be away from it, but I, I really thought a lot about just traveling around, watching practices, going to training camps, going to college practices, and continuing to you know, study and grow that way. And uh, so I didn't have a definitive plan. The consulting thing kind of came up, but it was going to be a year just to study and then kind of reevaluate. Um, and to be honest, you know, what I was going to do is this opportunity didn't come, then I was going to go back to Brooklyn and, and do consulting again um, because it was, uh, I feel great, you know. It was, you know, you get your NBA fix. Um, so it worked for me. You talked about the end in Charlotte before you went to Orlando, and 
you know, you, you missed time. You had some health issues that you worked through, and it made that last season more challenging. How much of just, like you said, feeling like you got healthier, you got the time away from, you know, the travel and the lack of sleep, this it takes a toll, and you were doing it for a very long time. That time between leaving Orlando and now coming back to Charlotte, helpful, and feeling like people use the term recharged, but healthier. Oh, I, I, I do for sure. I think also the year of, of not coaching and having a lesser role, I watched, you know, I would sit around, you know, when I would go back to Orlando when I wasn't in Brooklyn. So I watched a ton of games. And you, you know, you get to watch, you get to watch and evaluate and think about things at a totally different pace. Um, so in terms of my clarity or my thoughts on what our staff's going to try to do with this team and just evaluating the NBA and, and how we're playing, um, what's working, because it changes every year, as you know, I feel uh, in such a, you know, a good place. One of the things that happened when going from Charlotte to Orlando, I mean, I was excited to go there and I enjoyed it there. Um, but again, like you said, you go from being fired to jumping into these job searches. And uh, I think sometimes you don't realize, you know, that you're not getting any time to, you know, whatever, recharge, start over. Um, so it was definitely, it was, it, was, it was a good year for me. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. The team that you take on in Charlotte, I think most would agree, maybe as talented of a group as you've coached as a head coach in the league, the Miles Bridges situation is obviously in flux right now. But when you looked at this roster and looked at style of play and how you're going to coach here, you saw what? Yeah, I, I think it will be the most talented team that I've coached. Um, I've had, you know, good teams, um, but probably, and I don't know this for sure, but probably never had a team that was picked to be better than seventh or eighth, you know. This team is made to run a lot of offensive firepower and what we need to be able to do is to continue to build on the offense where there's so much good that's been done and then become more balanced and if we do that you know we can take another step this year you had a you built an incredible relationship with Kemba Walker and your time here together and was the leader of your team. He was your best player. And I think you guys always had a pretty good, I think a very strong shared view of, of how you'd play and how you'd kind of carry out your vision and your leadership of the group. Very different background, experience, national championship, college player than LaMelo Ball, who's just 
had a different little different generation and a different pathway to the NBA, different experiences leading into it. How do you build a relationship and build a partnership with him? And you start to think about the time you want to put in. He's your best player. And you've got to be able to have that with him too, right? Yeah, I think it starts as much as anything. And we, we've started, we've had conversations, but it starts with having the right individual plan and the right team plan. The best players that I've been around, they want direction. They want to be coached. They want structure. And I think that's where Kemba and I got along well. And with Mello, you know, where we're at right now, because I, I told him, and this goes back to the, the Van Gundy way, you know, we're not going to guess. You know, I'm not ready yet. It's only been a couple of weeks to start talking to him in real, real specifics about the two or three areas that he needs to concentrate more on. I've told him that. We're all watching film every day. And as we get here in these next two or three weeks, I'll feel more comfortable sitting down and saying, this is what I see. Do you agree with this, not agree with it? And that's where coach player starts, I think, in the NBA. It was me trying to be as much of an expert as I can on how they'll play the best, how they can grow, and then the discussion, the transparency and discussion about those things. How can he play so that he plays well and the team functions well when he's on the floor? The thing I already like about him, a lot from talking to him, but also by watching film, that's very similar to Kemba, though, is he has a love of the game. When you watch him play, there's joy on the floor which when you watch Kemba play all the way up through, from Rice to UConn to the NBA, it was one of the things that stood out about him also. You mentioned Michael Jordan and kept a you know relationship with him and sort of seeing things, and you talk about work with him, that there's things, I think you know what his values are and what he values in, in a team, an organization. When you started to talk to him again about coming back, and he looked at where this group was and what he wanted for it. Your sense that, listen, they want to get better defensively and they want to mature a young group. Was your sense that like all the things that you talked about early when you became the head coach here is what he wanted again? Like you, you were back at a place where you fit what he knew the group needed. Yeah, I... You know, I, I think with Michael, it's very interesting, you know, because even the other coaches in the league always ask, like, you know, how is it? You know, because he was such a ferocious competitor, obviously, winner. Um, it can be intimidating for sure. But I always point out to people, if you watch the documentary, is all of the clips of him in practice, him on the bench when they talk to players, it was always a coverage, a technique something about where the ball was going to go, right? And that's how he is as an owner. That's why, to me, I think we've always gotten along well. He likes to come in and talk basketball, and it's never, you know, just generic effort-based stuff. You know, he'll send you a text after a game and saying, you know, did you ever think about this on that coverage? You know, I like the way you guys guarded this. Or, you know, what do you think about putting this guy in the post more or anything like that? That's the way he thinks. He's nuts and bolts basketball. Where he gets upset is they're not helping each other on defense. The ball's not moving freely. And I actually think it's a huge advantage to be working for him because he knows. 
I mean, he knows. Like, he watches games closely, and he knows why you win, why you lose. And so I'm going to say this the right way. You know, in this league, sometimes it's hard because, you know, there's a lot of people around, and they're not necessarily don't have basketball backgrounds, where he obviously, you know, is, is so knowledgeable, and he understands the coaches are busy. So when he calls, you know, it's meaningful. The values that you bring as a coach and the principles that you believe in and sort of the non-negotiables of what you want out of your players, especially your players, as the years go in this league, are you faced with having to compromise on those because of how the league has evolved, the power players have, the power of players' agents have, all the other things that come in organizationally about how you have to deal with guys that are the reality of the job. Is a lot of that different than when you came in the league with Jeff Van Gundy in New York and Jeff Van Gundy in Houston, Stan in Orlando, or even your first run through in Charlotte? Like, can you execute the job exactly like you want to, or do you have to, do, do you have to compromise? Yeah, I think the job's a lot different than it was 10 years ago when I came here before because the players are different and society's different. And uh, I think youth basketball in our country's changed a lot, which has been a big part of all this. Um, you know, we have more and more younger players coming into the league. Every roster has more young guys. We have bigger staffs. There are more people around. So I think being able to work with other people effectively has always been important, more so today because we have more people. I will say this, though, is what hasn't changed is how you get to whatever you want to call environment or culture. There's got to be uh, a level of work, and that, to me, I think the easiest way to say it is the right amount of work for your roster. Veteran teams are different than younger teams. Okay, How do you get to work? It gets back to what you're saying. That's where the relationship building, having credibility with your group, uh, making good decisions so that you're working in a rate where everybody can make progress. The second part is, the hardest one is accountability of play. One thing that hasn't changed is we may not practice as much anymore or as long, but we play well. You know, the, the, the execution level in the playoffs was fun to watch, and that's a challenge as a coach, whether it's accountability player to player, coaching staff to players, whatever. So to me, those are the two things that you have to be constantly thinking about. I think you have to spend even more time with the players now, one-on-one, to try to get, again, the most effective type of relationship you can have with each guy. But I will say this, being around Kevin Durant this year, the best players want structure, they want to be work, and they want want accountability of play. You know, when you talk about having a relationship with a player, I think sometimes people think your definition of what a relationship is and maybe what people on the outside think what the relationship is. I imagine your idea of a relationship is you sit and watch film together. You correct mistakes. There's got to be a level of honesty and acceptance of criticism. Like to you, what's an NBA? That doesn't mean you're going and hanging out. That doesn't mean you're going out to dinner together. That doesn't mean you are listening to the same music on your playlist. But what's an effective or the right kind of coach-player relationship 
in 2022 in the NBA? I think is determined so much by the two people involved. And so we all, just like, I mean, being adaptable, obviously, in, in, for all of us, right, in any profession is critical. But I think that it starts with being yourself uh, as a head coach and then your credibility in our league with the players is everything. So for me, obviously, I didn't play in the NBA. I mean, I was a marginal Division three player. I've always tried to do it by knowledge of their game, knowledge of the league, gaining their trust that I have a good idea of what our team has to do so that we can win. And I try to build the relationships around that. I, I, I think in the simplest foremost, I would say this, for, in, for every head coach is probably different. I want to have the right player-coach relationship. You know, for me, it's like you said, like, you know, I had lunch with Terry Rozier yesterday, but we talked basketball, talked about his game. We talked about our team, about what kinds of things that he sees, what he thinks are important. So I do spend a lot of time with them, but it's not super social. You know, um, that's just for me, that's the right way. I think that the most powerful thing, though, that you can do, and it's a huge part of leadership in, in any business, is that you have to be committed to helping them play better. And once they see that you know, you're knowledgeable, and that you have a real commitment to them in their game, that's where you can start to build that type of relationship. You've had a the kind of coaching career and ascension in the NBA that I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a lot more. When you look at the, you know, Will Hardy got the jazz job. He came up film room in San Antonio. You know, sort of a little more like Eric Spolstra did in Miami. Um, Frank Vogel did in Boston and came up and became a head coach from a non-playing background. Yours was a story that you might see more in the 60s, 70s, you know, small high school job from Maine, high school job to volunteer, Division II job, St. Anselm, where there was even Division, I don't want to date you, was there even Division II? Was St. Anselm was Division II, yeah. yeah. You're not that old that there wasn't Division One <laughs> and everything else, I know that. Never ask you this, you think of all the job moves you made, what, when you look back, felt like the biggest break you ever had the the biggest jump you felt like you made where you said because it may not be what people would think it is which is my first head coaching job in the NBA or the Knicks what what was the one along the way where you go boy that jump felt like hey I can have a career at this yeah I would say to me I mean it's going from East Carolina to the Knicks you know when Jeff when Jeff hired me to be an advanced scout it was uh, you know first of all is the team, you know, I mean, that that was, you know, Patrick had just left, but, you know, Larry Johnson, Spree, Allen Houston, all those guys. And I learned so much, Charlie Ward, Mark Jackson. But also, I'll never forget Jeff saying is that you've got to have a be super organized with the, the way you're going to do this. If you handle this the right way, it's a coaching clinic every night. And, you know, I went out there, well, you know, I was a junkie. And I didn't know a lot about the NBA, but look at the coaches then. Larry Brown, Pop, Pat Riley, George Carl, Phil Jett. You know, it was. There were just so many great coaches. And uh, 
the advanced scouting is a difficult job. But, I mean, you know, you're flying around every night watching the best players, and I'd never been around the NBA. So, anyway, doing that, that's when it first hit me. Like, this is, you know, great stuff, great opportunity. The job and the element that you did it, and some of the guys I mentioned, I mean, I remember being a young reporter sitting at the Garden at Knicks games and the advanced scouts. There were nights where the advanced scouts, they'd be sitting right where the sports writers were. It was Eric Spolstra. It was Lawrence Frank in Vancouver. It was Frank Vogel, like I said, in Boston. Steven Silas in Charlotte. Yeah, like the guys who became head coaches. And, and, and the sense was you really learn the league by doing that job. You learn personnel. You're sitting right by the bench, so you're hearing – the value for as an advanced scout, you'd get the play calls, but you also learn body language on the bench. You could learn, you know, if your team was thinking about training for a guy, you could go back and say, hey, when the coach took him out of the game, he was an asshole on the bench, right? He was, you got a sense of attitude. You got a sense of, you could learn a lot just sitting there, right? Mm. And that's gone because those seats, once they started moving the advanced scouts up higher in the arena, I think it lost value for teams, but it always felt like if you were in the film room and you watched a ton of film and you did that advanced job, you learned the league. You, like you said, you learned those coaches. And I don't think it's an accident that a lot of you guys, it was a springboard over time to then going to the bench, behind the bench, front of the bench, and then becoming a head coach. Yeah, I, oh, for sure. And I, I think the other part, there's, the other part for me that I used to do were particularly if it were Pop, if it was Pat Riley, Larry Brown, I would always go to the pre, you know the post game press conference because you can learn things in there. I mean, I'll I'll never forget Miami, you know Hardaway, Alonzo, those guys, Eddie Jones, Vashawn Leonard. They lost a game one night in Cleveland, and they asked Coach Riley about it after the game, and he and that's it's I've never forgotten this. He said, "Hey, I could guess right now and tell you, but." We didn't do some things well, but until I watch the film, I'm guessing. And so if you want to talk to me tomorrow, I'll be able to tell you more definitively about really what happened. And I've never forgotten that. And that's obviously a big part, the post-game evaluation for both Jeff and Stan. And, you know, I learned so much of that from Tom, from Tibbs, you know, working with him over the years of it takes a lot of time. It adds to the grind but it's how you can make your team better because you do know really what happened. One of the sidebars I'll tell you, we that year we ended up losing in the playoffs to Toronto, best out of five. That was the Vince Carter, Alvin Williams, those guys, Del Curry played on yep. that team. And uh, But anyway, I was scouting the AI. You know, we were going to play the winner of uh, – it was Reggie Miller's team in Indiana against AI. And Larry Brown had a million plays. And, you know, Jeff would remember every play. So there was a lot of pressure to get the play calls. And he would always change plays. And I'll never forget, I was sitting there with Brian James. And Larry Brown called out the old number one. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be a long night. He just got in the playoffs here. <laughs> you know. You think back to sort of learning learning how to coach in the NBA and learning how to command the respect of players. Like you said, when you didn't play and what your edge was. I remember Jeff Van Gundy as a young coach in New York, as a head coach. That 
like I think he felt they needed to see the bags under his eyes. They needed to see that he didn't leave the office last night, that he was trying to find every edge he could for those for the team to win. And that in the end, it doesn't matter like if you play, that's great, and there are inherent advantages of having been a player that a coach can use in the job, but you've got to find what your strengths can be and what your edge was. And guys, you talked about Jeff Stan, Tom Thibodeau. Uh, your edges had to be, it's gotta be preparation, right? It's gotta be preparation and I'm gonna help you get better as a player. I'm gonna help you win. I'm gonna help you get another contract. Absolutely. No, and, and I think also is, and this speaks to, you know, one of the, one of the buzzwords is player development, right? Which is a huge thing now. And when coaches get together, look, my dad was doing player development in Northern Vermont, you know, when I was growing up 30 years ago. It's like we develop, like player development has never been done. Every good coach in every sport has always been locked into player development. Now we have more people doing it and this and that. But one of the things that you just talked about that I think the best coaches in this league constantly do is, Player development never stops. It's not just the guys we draft. I think that's more uh, where coaches get, you know, evaluated because, you know, people get drafted, they haven't played yet, and fans want them to get better quickly. I think the best coaches in this league is the 26, 27, 28-year-olds develop. Uh, It's how you win. You know, guys emerge, they come on, and – when you do that to get back to the environment is, you know, Miami being a good example is guys are constantly striving to get better, regardless of how old they are. Again, I'll get back to watching Kevin this year. If you watch Kevin Durant every day do his routine, he's trying to get better as, you know, arguably be the best player in the world. So uh, I think all of that fits together. The year you spent with the Lakers with Kobe, I know you built a good relationship with him because he liked to talk basketball. He liked to talk coverages. He liked to talk. I know you'd get into a walkthrough with him and he'd have right pointed questions about why are, why are we going to defend that like that? Right. What, what was that? He would definitely have definitive thoughts on how we should do it for sure. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was great. I mean, the two relationships that mean so much to me were the one with him and then with Steve and uh Steve Nash yes and both students of the game you know guys that like to talk basketball and wanted to watch well I didn't watch film with Kobe but Steve and I used to watch a lot of film but Kobe was it it, his passion his self-confidence his belief like he would almost you know looking back whenever we lost he was shocked that the team that he could be on, that anybody could beat us. I'll never forget, we had a Sunday night game. with The Clippers beat us four times that year, and we lost to them on a Sunday night. And the week was at Oklahoma City Tuesday with Kevin and those guys, at Houston Wednesday, at San Antonio Friday. That game, I think Powell got a concussion and Dwight hurt his shoulder, and so they were probably going to miss all three games, right? And I happened to walk out with him, and he said, I'm telling you right now, 3-0 and road trip. And that's how he thought, you know, is give me Jordan Hill out there at center, you know, or he used to call him Nashy at the point, and we'll win this road trip. And it was 
of of all this greatness, just the the belief that he had in himself was it was incredible to watch. Getting better at the job and learning when you, when you go along the way of when you're around guys like Kobe, Steve Nash, like there's one thing like you work for people and you learn things and you guys go to clinics and you go to dinner with a coach and you pull out a napkin and you're drawing up plays. But, but how much should coaches be learning along the way from their players? And not just their great players, there's great role players that there's who have a role who you're going to learn from too and how they go about their business or, or see or view how they stay in the league, how they thrive in the league. How, how much a part of that is being an, should be being a part of an NBA coach? Yeah, and I, I think that you go back to my background, I would say the, the guys I worked for, they all did that. Because, you know, one of the challenges of coaching NBA players, which, by the way, in many ways, much easier than coaching college guys. Much easier. But one of the challenges... Why? Uh, older. Mm-hmm. You know, more mature. You know, they they have a higher IQ. They have a better idea of what they have to do to play well. But along with that is that you better be prepared because most of them have probably played for a really good high school coach, a really good college coach, and then maybe three or four really excellent NBA coaches or assistants or whatever. So when you're in front of them and you say, hey, this is how we're doing pick and roll coverage, they may have heard it from great coaches before. And when it doesn't work, okay, and they have thoughts on how it can get better, one, you're crazy not to listen to them. But it, what I think what it does do is that you can't just be throw things out there. You have to have thought about it, talked about it with your staff, uh, so you have definitive answers to get them when they disagree. When you got the job at Adelphi as a head coach, you went and got some time with Jeff Van Gundy in New York, right? And there was something he told you about how, how much you can talk to a team that has stayed with you going in. It was what? You know, it was great. He said, like, talk to them when you have something to say. Like, there's no need to – I'll never forget. He said, there's no need to bring them in in a huddle every day at half court. They know they're supposed to pay attention and work hard and have good attitudes. They don't need to hear a 20-minute story every day. And so I, I'm, I'll give you a great story. Is I had John Dunn, who's now the head coach at Marist, great coach, is the first year that he worked for me, I think it was the third year I was there, and I had a lot of the same guys back. So I knew we should be an NCAA team. And uh, I didn't used to. I used to walk in the gym and say, you know, whatever, five-man weave or three-man shooting or whatever. And – then, you know, as we got into the bigger games later in the year, I would start to sit them down. And so he told me one day, he said, you know, I, I have to say I've enjoyed this, but I almost asked you four or five times, you rarely talk to the team like it's all just basketball. And then he goes, now I see because when you do sit them down, they listen because they know, oh, when he's going to talk to us, it's something that's important. And I think that's something that both Jeff and Stan were great at, it, both of them. They only brought him in to talk when it was something that was important for that time in our season. And players sense that. You know, I know you feel very strongly about this. And, 
you know, Jeff Van Gundy hasn't been a coach in a league. There's a generation of people they know him as a broadcaster. He's been probably at ESPN as long as he was a head coach in New York. I think he's probably spent more time as an analyst at ESPN than he was maybe in his combined years of New York and Houston. But you have felt he was as good of a coach, like pound for pound, as there was in the league. I think any coach would would say that. I think I remember Larry Brown saying he's as good as it gets in this league, and all of it, though, you know, all of it, not just a part of it, not just you know, we all get labeled right, not just a defensive coach or not just a big man coach. Is the things that I've learned for both he and Stan as much as anything is when you play eighty two times with the quality of coaches that you're coaching against, right, with the the scrutiny that comes along with coaching this league, so much of it is the decisions. And I can't tell you how many times working for either Jeff or Stan that either we won a game and the next day you're driving in saying, I wonder what he'll do today, how, you know, what the tone's going to be, or you, maybe you lost two or three in a row. And with both of them, rarely, rarely, did I ever, you know, because you, you know, I would always drive home and be thinking about it. So many times I would say, wow, genius move. You know, you lose two in a row and you think they're going to hammer the guys that day and it might be no film. We're just moving on. Or two or three quick quick, quick we're moving on. But they both had such a feel for the roster and what the team needed on a specific day that, you know, I think that's was the both of them. It was a, the, their greatness. When you take over now in Charlotte and you come to summer league, you know, usually for a head coach, summer league, you're leaving it to your staff and they're running it. You're there. You you pop in. You you're at the games, but you're not on the floor coaching the team necessarily. But you're trying to implement your program. How much more have you been more hands on? Have you been more involved than you thought you might be? Or have you, how have you approached coming to Summer League with this young group and said, there's a tone I'm going to set. So when they come back in September to start, you know, you start open gym or whatever, and then training camp where you said that there's something I got to get, start to get in place here now. Yeah, there were a few things that I've done. Um, actually, before, when I came to Charlotte, the last time before I coached Summer League, because I hadn't been a head coach yet with our staff and we try to do everything to get our staff more organized too when i went to orlando pat delaney coached but i did the first practice i did the whole first practice i haven't done as much this time for part of the reason to be honest is you know i just gotten the job so i you know i'm out here i'm still trying to meet with some of the players but there were a couple of things and this started a lot with mitch and buzz that i agree with one is we told them that our plan is everybody's playing five games. Now, that could change depending on minutes to make sure that we get to evaluate everybody. Uh, but when we sat down the first time, Mitch said, I think I know what you're going to say, but I don't understand why we would go all the way out there, spend all this time so guys can play two games. Totally agree. So that was one of the things we talked about. Now, we have a couple guys that have played big minutes, done a good job that we may not have played like all the games because um, we want everybody to get minutes. But to me, that's the first thing, to establish that 
we're going to use every possible opportunity to get better. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that regardless how old, and I know our owner feels this way, is if we have opportunities to play five-on-five with referees against good competition, then let's try to use that to get better. We have done that. Um, There have been a couple of times uh, in practices where I've just jumped in a little bit because there are things that, you know, we need to concentrate on. Uh, But most of it, what I've done, Woj, is we have five guys here, plus James Booknight, who's injured, and I've tried to spend more time just one-on-one with them. And, uh, again, try to start to develop the type of player-coach relationship where agreeing about how they have to play, again, so they can play well and the team functions well when they're on the floor. Cliff, you you know that there are organizations in this league where the head coach – almost literally cannot make a decision unless it's in concert with the front office. Decisions that at one time were just coaching staff decisions now are quote-unquote organizational decisions. It varies by organizations, certainly. For a coach, in, in your view, what's the right balance of the autonomy a coach has to have but how you should be working in concert with the front office? Well, first of all, the working together part is everything. Because the one thing I've learned, you know, is if the coach and the coaching staff can't work well with management, you have no chance to win. You know, there's such a fine line between success and failure at this level. You need everybody pulling in the same direction. You know, one of the things I feel great about here is, you know, frankly, look, Mitch is old school. Mitch's nuts and bolts basketball, as is Buzz, as is Michael. And um, I think that it'll all be, all the decisions will be about winning. So we talked a lot about style of play, about, uh, you know, the players individually, what they need to play, and I feel like we're very much on the, on the same page. But to get back to your original question, as all the organizations have grown, you know, we have uh, instead of like you know, advanced scout, when I was an advanced scout, I was the fourth assistant. Now, now the idea, like you're saying, the advanced scout now would be like the ninth, tenth guy. As you have more and more people around, you have to be able to find ways to work effectively with other people, and that's the most important relationship. Everything gets bigger. That you have a bigger staff. Front office has a bigger staff. There's an analytics department that's sharing information with you and them about lineup combinations, any number of things, maybe who should be playing more based on numbers that that you might have some pretty strong feelings of why there's another view of that information. Some of it, I guess, is better. It's like, I think you're somebody who information's important, data's important to make decisions because you want all of it. But when it's all bigger and there are more people that have to have a voice in it, does it make it for the head coach that the head coach is the one that probably more of that falls at his feet in terms of how to manage it? Well, there's certainly, I, I think there's aspects that are very positive. Like you said, you have more people who have great knowledge about areas that we don't know as coaches that can help you. More people can help the players. A basic tenant of leadership is the more people you have around, you know, the larger the percentage of problems, you know, that can occur. So there's so much of it. One, you have to take responsibility as the head coach to get to know everybody that you're working with, to have, again, the right type of relationship. 
And then I think it brings into what has always been critical anyway, your coaching staff. you got to have a great staff. You have to have a strong staff because the most important thing I could be doing in a day is talking to a player, you know. But there are many, many more aspects of what you're doing as a head coach now so that things function well. And if you don't have a staff that you can trust and that you're not all on the same page talking the same language with the same vision, it's going to be very difficult to get everybody working together. I think there was a clinic um, or something here at, at Summer League where Brad Stevens was talking and another coach said to me, Brad Stevens in a forum there made the point that as the team president now, when he talks to a player, he doesn't talk to them about, he'll talk to them about life, about how they're doing, but he doesn't talk to them about the basketball because he's like, I don't know in every moment what the messaging is for my coaching staff in the film room, in practice, because I'm not in all of those. And I never want to say anything to them that's in conflict to that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what somebody I think, how important is that? Yeah, well, one, I mean, you know, Brad is one of the great coaches in our league and and just has such a feel for all of it. I don't care what aspect of basketball, teaching, leadership you talk to. He's he's one of the best guys, my favorite guys to learn from in the league. And again, this is what I'm getting back to about the more people that touch the players. There's so many ways that you can look at that. My thing is, the challenge is the head coach now because people, it's not just people within the building, as you know, they have their people. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes it's their college coach. It's their AAU coach. It's, it could be their agent. And they're trying to help them too, but they're not there every day. And they're not watching practice. And they're not watching film closely. So it is hard. But I, I, would, t- I would say that the challenge is this for your staff is built such great credibility with each guy that when you talk, you know, they're listening to you more than everybody else. I don't think you can shut everybody out. I don't think you can have rules about, I don't want to be walking by and see you talking to somebody in right. the corner. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, it's, it's like anything. There's aspects of any job that you can sit around and complain about or try to figure out the best way so that your group will operate and function well together. Cliff, this was great. I am uh, thrilled to have you back as one of 30 in this league. And so a few more days here in Summer League. And, you know, I don't know, do you have any more trips to New England left before training camp? First week in August, I'll be up there. You have one week up in Maine. So Your dad still has a camp, right? Yeah, my dad is running basketball camp in North, North Country Union High School this week, the 50th year that he's run it. He still goes back out there, and my brother's out there with him, and they run it with the high school coach. That's tremendous. Yeah. That's tremendous. Cliff, thanks for doing this, and uh, congrats on being back in Charlotte. Thank you very much.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.